You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. This is Standing in Two Worlds, talking a little bit quicker today, uh, because Dr. Sam Juni, who's in your Shalimera Kodesh, is giving us of his precious time. Sam, there's been, as we've said, uh, a lot of things going on since the last two weeks that we've spoken. Um, not only uh, has there been the fallout from Miron, um, there was a, the terrible uh, rocket attacks and the, the fear that gripped so many different communities in Eretz Yisrael, uh, the frustration with what's happening in terms of the, uh, the area of, uh, of public responses in terms of the media. Uh, and here, even in the, in the United States and other places, there has been a uptick in attacks against people who are obviously Jewish. So there's been a, a, quite a bit of, of, of pain and, 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 and frustration and again, we still haven't really recovered from what COVID put us through. But there was also the incident that occurred on Shavuos night uh, in, in, this, in the Stone or Bismedrish, I think in Givadzev, where um, the uh, bleachers collapsed, uh, killing a couple of uh, two young people um, and injuring countless others, or at least there was a count, I think a hundred other people were injured. And I know, Sam, there's been a lot of discussion in the media, even the Haredi media and the Haredi newspapers, uh, about re- recognizing and reorganizing uh, ourselves and understanding that some of the fault lies within uh, the community itself in terms of not aligning itself properly uh, with the government authorities, not bringing and being cognizant of the uh, of the danger issues that were inherent almost everywhere, and that this needs to change. Um, And and although I don't know if those voices are an overwhelming one, but those voices, as you've pointed out to me in private conversations, are really at war, or at least battling with others that have much more of a laissez-faire attitude. I haven't seen the bumper stickers here in in America, but you you have told me that in Eretz Yisrael there is I think you said it probably comes out of Chabad, I'm not sure, a, a attitude of Yiyatov, that thinking positively and thinking that things are going to work out and God will take care of us and that we have to have something called Emunapshuta and not try to overthink things and not believe that we really control the situation. Well, obviously this is a, a very delicate balance, uh, a philosophical one, and maybe one that the fault lines go back into you know, hundreds and perhaps a thousand years in terms of how we need to approach our relationship to the creator. But I know you've got your own thoughts, and I know that you're going to bring to the table uh, your own unique perspective that, of course, is developed out of the, uh, the, the psychological world that you tread so magnificently in and um, – I'm going to give you the the chevel so to speak. Why don't you uh, begin to explain to us your take on these things, and and perhaps if people are listening to this, it can give them not only an understanding of what's going on, but of a way out and a way to perhaps that these things won't happen again. Go ahead. Right. I don't presume that I have any way out of any things. I'm just an armchair diagnostician. I'm quite proud of it. No, I don't, I don't have solutions. I just have problems. So we'll begin with that. Let me also say, I don't tread 
in the psychological world. I live there. I'm quite comfortable. You know, when, you know, Sam, you've got to write my copy, okay? When I have to come up with something, you know, okay, why don't you write my intros and I will just read them, okay? Because I know that... Then you give me nothing to do. This way I have things to pick on. Very well. Look, look, right. you definitely live there. And then when you get up and you decide to talk to me, you are treading in the, from that world back. I'm treading to talk at, to when, me. I, when I'm out of the, um, shall we say, the, the couch, the couch chair, then I am in a strange world. But here I feel quite at home. Okay. Okay, let's roll. Um, let me mention a couple of things first. Uh, the, um, um, the fiasco at, um, well, in general that happened in Miron, and, but more specific, the fiasco that happened at Caroline with the bleachers collapsing. Let me just say a fact here. The, um, the investigators who have looked around at the bleacher phenomena, which appears mostly at the Titian of Rebus, but also at all the major weddings in, um, uh, uh, of Hasidish Rebus in Israel. And the, again, the investigation was more limited in New York, in, in New York, not America, in New York. But the findings are that nobody uses permanent um, joint fixtures uh, for bleachers, which means everybody uses the same um, show, irresponsible kind of wire ties to join um, the metal poles and the wooden um, stanchions and bleachers, which is quite frightening. It's been around, it's been pointed out by um, spot checks of engineers. It's just been totally ignored. Primarily, uh, best I can tell, for, with the attitude, ah, it'll work out, let's not worry. Which, by the way, um, is found in three distinct um, subpopulations in the United States. It's found by the Hasidim in general, not just around the bleachers, but also about uh, various kinds of, shall we say, shady um, activities that run in the gray side of the law. Ah, it'll work out. We don't have to worry. Many embezzlers have been caught, have been doing it almost in broad daylight with the understanding that there's no need to cover their tracks because it'll work out. Um, that's one. Um, the other, so among Hasidim, it's also found very much, I find it because I happen to be a member of the Sephardi Shul, um, in my community. Amongst Fardim, it's very common, year 12, and I'm speaking primarily um, in relationship to the dangers in the army and the dangers of the political settlements, which are obviously quite um, um, tenuous. And again, year 12 is there, it'll work out. Um, it's, I see it also in a distinctly Chiloni um, uh, population uh, in rash, rash um, 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 instances, for instance, in construction, they will put something together or balance something. I mean, balance this huge truck with a five or six, in my neighborhood, a six-story derrick going on that's balanced on some kind of crate that looks like I, I wouldn't use it for, for, for putting eggs into. And here they are balancing this huge crate. Eh, it'll work out. It's an interesting attitude. Uh, also, in terms of driving behavior, people do things here. Very common to see um, cars with only one headlight working, of course, speeding at, at, at horrible speed rates. People passing on mountainous roads with a double um, um, white line 
in blind terms, they just pass and they have a year tov attitude. And it's, it's just vexing. Where does it come from? Um, so it's interesting they, yeah. that, in other words, I sort of like described it as a, a belief in God. But you're telling okay. me you're telling well, me that it, it actually exists in the in, in Israel in general. We talked about the risk taking that occurs yeah. in Israel, but you're saying it's really something that might be more pervasive in the what's developed as the Israeli mentality yeah, rather definitely. than the Orthodox or Haredi mentality. See, so I'm not sure whether it's Israeli mentality or I'm dealing with certain subtests because, for instance, I have not seen it in the shall we say the secular academic community does not have a Yetov attitude at all. So these are kind of subsets, and um, most people don't get into it, but I'm very curious, speaking to um, like accident victims, trauma victims, just to see what's going on. And that comes up a lot, even after the trauma. The Yetov is still there. Um, let me also say that... Um, you know, I, 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 you know, I, I would say, Sam, just, and I have no basis on this, but what we do find in, in, in the United States and other places that I'm familiar with, Mexico and other places, is that there is a, whether it's, whether you are a firm religious believer or not, I think there is a, a, a sort of shadow of what had been a religious outlook. Uh, you're right, a, a scientific secular person who is training to, who's training to think of cause and effect is one thing. But as, as you're correct, a person perhaps less educated or someone who's living in the shadow of what was a religious environment, although they don't go to church or practice some of the, the strictures of the religion, still have this idea that things will work out in the end. There's someone taking care of us. Uh, this too will pass. You, you, again, there is this uh, as we say, and that is something which I think is, is, is pervasive. Uh, and, and it comes usually, Sam, when people are frustrated. And, and, and you're right, it, the, the, the after effect is they get frustrated in terms of what they've, what they've invested, that it didn't work. And then instead of trying harder and trying to build a better mousetrap, so to speak, they move back and say, look, I, I can't control this. Hope It's going to be hopefully if things will work out. And uh, popular movies and media help cement that right everybody likes watching a, a a film that 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 takes the arc of the characters somehow incredibly towards some happy hollywood ending which is also this idea of yetov right so i think you've 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 sparked this idea that it doesn't seem to be necessarily a religious one maybe it's it, it stems from what used to be a religious world but what's what it's the the shell that it permeates is not necessarily one that we would call Jewish or Haredi or religious in any way. Uh, would you say that's correct? I think what you're saying something is almost profound, and I think that with a little bit tweaking, you would have been a great psychoanalyst because you're getting to where I want to go. I just want to like, check off the little boxes first and make sure I have it covered. But yes, okay. definitely, that's where I'm going. I'm going to something much more deep-seated, but I just wanted to, to X out the more practical ones. Let me just say that I misspoke when I said I find it also among the academics, those are most of the people I hang out with. I meant more the intelligentsia. So I'm talking about um, people who are more educated, but not necessarily scientists. I'm talking about people who are like in, in, the, in the business fields or like in the, the more 
practical uh, um, engineering, um, even construction. So, okay, fine. So let me just try to, let me talk about the religious aspect just a little bit. There's an old debate around people who are sincere believers in deity, especially in micromanagement. And the question is, if you really believe in an all-empowering God who is involved with the minutia and takes care of things, why do we go through any kind of effort to change what's going on around us? Of course, in the, in the um, uh, halakhic circles, that's called the shtadlot. So the question is between uh, the control of God and the shtadlot. Let me give you a crazy uh, incident which happened um, uh, during the uh, latest um, Gaza craziness. There is a person who is respected as a uh, spokesperson of, shall we say, the real Haredi Musar um, Lithuanian perspective. And he opined that when you put the kids to sleep... Okay, can, can I interrupt you for a second? Can yeah. I interrupt you for a second? Okay, so I've actually, you know, there, there are many people who listen to our program and uh, listen to some of the other um, offerings that we have. And I know what you're, where you're going, and I've actually spoken about this, about Rav Zilberstein's uh, yes, quote unquote sock, and and you know again, it, it was brought to the fore. Mark Shapiro, uh, you know, gave you know found it in, in in a book that was printed. He gave it to Slivka. Oh, we we have it without the books. We got it firsthand here, and it raised the hackles of. No, no, I, I understand. And, and it was Slivkin who was who was waving this around. Uh, oh, okay, and, good. And, and and making it seem as if that's the Haredi mentality. I do. And I am going, I know where you're going with this. And again, I'm sorry for stealing your thought. No, no, no. I gave it as a bizarre example. I'm sorry. Let's just let the audience know what it is first. Okay, okay? I will. Okay, so this Please. is a psaac from from a safer, again, Yusuf Zilberstein uh, is a very popular writer. He's a person who has popularized, I would say, um, uh, interesting Talmudic thought. He's a person who has, uh, you're right, he sits, he has a, he has a, a seat uh, he's a Shiva in uh, the Rosh Kolev in Chalon, and he sits on, I guess, something called the Moetzes in Eretz Yisrael. I'm not sure exactly, but really his claim to fame is his popular books, his forum, which, um, uh, as I've said in other forums, is sort of like the Chelkas um, Yoyev of for the 21st century uh, children who don't necessarily have the attention span. It's, it's, yeah, it's, some, some of it call it the Olamenu of Halakha. Yes. Remember yes, okay, I was, I was even being more kind. I was calling yes. it the type, I was giving it a, a connection to the, the Kaba, the Kashaisa, the type of books that people just enjoyed after the Cholent, and it was a good idea to, to talk about. But It's I, a major fixture in quite a few Haredi households, including those of my grandkids, on Shabbat. Right, and and in America as well. And in fact, his books have been translated uh, into English. And many people tell me, as you say, this is what the kids read at the table and they prepare. And my point is, is that he has done a, a, a great service to the Jewish world, to the uh, in terms of bringing concepts and ideas and making things exciting and interesting. However, this psak supposedly that he wrote, psak I'm saying, I'm not sure if the person actually followed it, was that when the uh, when the rockets are being fired, uh, it, of course sirens go off. 
which demand that everyone leave the place that they're at and find a, a, a shelter with which to go into, and you have to bring your whole family. Many of the rockets, of course, were, were, uh, did not land in a, in a, in a way that was uh, dangerous, but we can't take any chances. So the question was, the person was frustrated that his children who needed to be roused and taken to this safe room were then not able to fall asleep properly and then suffered in school the next day. So the question was, since they are suffering in their learning of Torah, perhaps one did not have to follow the uh, civil defense authorities in terms of taking the children, rousing the children and taking them into the safe room. And because of the deleterious... May I just say, you're, be- you're being a little bit uh, generous. It was since we worked so hard as parents putting them to sleep, are we obligated to wake them up halakhically? Or do we consider it a hardship since it'll be so hard to put them to sleep oh, again? That's uh, the uh, question. Okay, the way I read it, he also mentioned the fact that they would be suffering in Torah and they wouldn't be able to uh, keep on that beautiful uh, idea of the Tinokos Shobes Rabban, the beautiful sounds of, of children learning Torah, reciting, and, and going into the schools. So Rav Zilberstein said uh, that because of, he wrote, because of the fact that they are children, their um, responsibility to do hishtadlis is much less than, or even non-existent. We adults do this quote-unquote hishtadlis to run into the, uh, to the bomb shelters because we have to do quote-unquote our part. But really it's God who is controlling things. The children don't have that responsibility because they don't have necessarily the baggage that we have. And therefore the children don't have the chiyuv hishtadlis. He did write that they don't have this responsibility. And therefore he said, his, his, and it was a one-page thing, and then he said, at the end, you don't need to wake them up. Okay. So uh, this was a, it was written seven years ago at the last Gaza uh, war. And uh, it was brought to the fore again. And it's been waved in through Natan Slifkin and others as an indicator of how terrible the Haredim are. They're letting their kids die. They're willing to let their kids die from some crazy uh murderous. Let, let me just interject there. Okay, so this is where I, I want to, uh, to basically get my soapbox. Go I'm ahead. not interested in evaluating whether this is a good or bad idea. I'm trying to understand the mentality of people that think like this without any overt judgment. I do have you, my judgment. Do you believe people... Again, I'm going to stop here for a second because I've spoken... I do not believe people are following this. I think it was like everything else he wrote, a lamenu like it was, it was meant to just pepper a, a question and to get people okay. thinking. Do you okay, think let, anybody, okay. do you really think people who are in Ashkelon, like my friends who, who are, uh, who I, who I speak with constantly are people in stay Do you think anybody is following this? Psaac- okay. So let me just say, we're going on a tangent here, but I don't mind because it's exciting. I don't think I know. I know that that's not people in Ashkelon, but I know that there's a substantial number of followers of the Chazonish who behave this way in Bnei Brak. They do not go into shelters when the siren arises because the Chazonish said in the 48th war that there will not be any bombs falling in Bnei Brak. 
which has been picked up by his family and then extended for whatever reason to say that the Chazonish also implied that there will never be any Yerabbits falling. <laughs> okay. So I know it. I don't think it. Okay, wait. Again, so, but, but I think you've... This is fun, but you're not getting into my skills of Freud and Kant. Right, I know, but it's There's apples. Wrong with this. But Sam, it's apples and oranges. Okay, I don't mind. I don't mind losing this argument. You just asked me. I have to answer when somebody asked me, even if I put egg on my face. Okay, so not, let's exhaust this and move on. Okay, so I again, since because and the only reason I jumped in is because I've been very passionately. A, a critic about using this piece of paper as a, a, a screed with which to bang the head of the Haredim and, and, and the Haredim. Okay, so wait it's, me, it's wait, not wait. my job, but okay. Okay. I, I, I don't mean to do that. I just have to get my... my okay, my so you are correct 100% about what you said about B'nai Brak and Rav Chaim Kanievsky is a gazun sign and those statements about... And his wife. Let's not forget his wife. Rebetzin Batsheva. A major, major Das Torah these days. Okay. You're talking about Rebetzin Batsheva? Yes. Okay. Ola Sholem. Oh, um, no, then I'm talking about his daughter-in-law. Okay. So, fine. Let's assume, and I, use, I am telling you, you are correct about that. However, as we know, B'nai Brak, Tel Aviv, is a, is a different story than Sterot, which is where that, and, and Ashkelon, and the other places with which the potential of a accurate strike is much greater. Correct? Mm-hmm. You agree yes. with me, right? Absolutely. The, okay. And, and, and there, I don't believe anybody, even if they are aligned with the Froom world, would, would follow this Eitzah of Rav Zilberstein. And, I, and in fact, I want to tell you that Rabbi Rubin uh, from the Big Shul in Harnof, the shul that was attacked uh, mercilessly, as you remember, a number of, of years ago. That was the shul in Harnof that uh, uh, people came in with machetes. Palestinian sympathizers came in with yep. machetes. Rabbi Tversky, I remember. And, yes. and killed Mesh Tversky, right? So um, the rabbi of that shul wrote a, and, I, and again, uh, I didn't see it, but he made sure to write a rejoinder against whatever was what Rav Zilberstein wrote and how it's incorrect. And obviously nobody should even think of following it. And I don't think anybody did. So, but I agree with you, Sam, that clearly there have been people who have ascribed to some sort of greater than an iron dome. There is this great umbrella of protection and we won't be hurt no matter what. I do agree with you. But I'm saying, I think Zilberstein's psaac that was said for communities that were in danger I don't believe anybody over there followed that. And, I, and, and, and the, oh, yeah. let, me just, let me just make it clearer. Chazonish is the, was the posek for B'nai Brock and his vision. Rabbi Yitzchak Zilberstein is not. Rabbi Yitzchak Zilberstein is... He's the posek for all grade schools now in the Orthodox, uh, in the Haredi uh, educational system, including the ones in the United States. He's the He's posek? The the post okay, I, I'm, be, I'm being ridiculous. What I'm saying is that his books are everywhere. Right. I, I was in a shul in Queens. There were 35 of his books covering all of Talmud, all of which contain these kinds of, um, okay. shall we say, attitudinal perspectives on Jewish... Uh, right. uh, and you, look, if, yeah. me, if you, me, you, and your brother sat down and went through the Chashuk Chemed, we would probably exile, we would probably be laughing 
about a, a decent percentage of what he was writing. It's a great it's, it's a great book, as I said, for a 10th grade Rebbe in modern school to have to get his kids thinking. Isn't this an interesting Absol- topic? Absolutely. Absolutely. But, but it is. But can you compare it to real Talmudic no, reason? No, no, because I am not a Talmudist and I don't care for I mean, from my perspective, my expertise, if you want to know halacha, don't talk to me, talk to a rabbi. But I <laughs> am trying to examine here. That's the psychological perspective. Go ahead. I, I, you know what, Sam? I'm sorry. I'm sorry for getting... Uh, no, no, it's fun. It's fun sparring with no, you. To me... I don't, I'm not an expert at this, so I can say anything and not help, be held responsible. It's because, it's because I care for you and, and, and I, oh. I respect you. Listen I, to what, I am touched. I'm <laughs> what, what I'm saying is you can't really believe that Rav Zilberstein, despite all the schusim he has of creating Torah, really represents the the mentality of what people are going to follow in terms of psak halacha. <laughs> you know that's not true. Now, I don't even, I don't think about it because that's not my idea. I don't yeah, care yeah, yeah. who represents so, what. It's all a game. But but you are you, you you but you are correct that the that the fact that it's out there and and that it's it's in a book is an indicator that this okay. attitude said I am correct. I want you to put that as an approbation on my next publication. Okay. okay? <laughs> I'm correct. Go ahead. But go ahead. We've got about 15 right. minutes. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. So so let me just say that um, going back to this stuff, um, the perspective, I think, in this kind of pers- attitude is not so much as Yia Tov, that things will work out to the positive, but one of fatalism. In other words, things will work out as they work out. I can try to do things, but that's just doing something for whatever reason. But it's not a year tov attitude. It's not a will be good. It's like there's nothing you can do about something that's preordained, okay? Which is a slightly different perspective. Um, I'll also say that the year tov perspective that's pushed on bumper stickers is mostly due to Chabad. And it comes from a particular thought of the Rebbe, which again, I'm just ruling this out, Xing it out is not relative to the meat, which I have not gotten to yet, thanks to the distractors. But in Lubavitch, <laughs> there's, a, there's a notion from the, from the Rebbe's mimer, which says, if you think good, things will be well. Hashov tov, yir tov. Or in Yiddish, he said it really, he didn't speak in Hebrew, was as matracht good, vetzayn good, which is also some kind of, uh, shall we say, a primitive uh, um, pre-Jewish thought that if you think, well, that somehow will influence fate to be well in itself, which is another attitude which we have to take out of here uh, as relevant. So let's get back. We had, we talked about, I mentioned the fact that most of the Hasidic um, community around the Titian and around the Hasidic weddings used metal ties to join things in a very dangerous way with the understanding it's going to work. So where does that come from? I would say it comes from several notions. Number one, it comes from a lack of scientific knowledge about what is it that makes bleachers crash. If you ask someone of that, um, shall we say, religious educational perspective, why do bleachers crash? The first answer will be because 
that's what was supposed to happen because God wanted it that way because there are sinners there because there are holy people. I don't know what they'll say because the guy didn't take a shower. Something that's irrelevant to understanding of science. The notion that there's something called a certain amount of weight that can bear a certain amount of people and otherwise it crashes. That's kind of stuff that those kaifrim, tzioinim, educated um, uh, engineers say, but they're not really part of us. We don't think that way. Why do you have to wear a mask on the plane? Because United are anti-Semites. They think that. They don't understand. I have in my building, okay, people, a number of people who do not wear masks in the elevators. A two-foot by two-foot elevator. If you talk to them, and I, can, I can't talk to them, but I talk to people who know them well, it's because they don't believe this stuff. Leave me alone. This is stuff invented by academic scientists, biologists who have nothing to do with one make a living or want to get a raise in tenure. There is no danger. Don't tell me I know because I talked to somebody in the, in the mikvah about it. That's a certain attitude. So it's a non-scientific attitude. And that's a major contributor to Mirone, as far as I'm concerned, to the parenches, I'm sorry, to the bleachers. That means they just don't believe it. Second of all, we have a very rich heritage, almost genetic, of growing up in shtetls when there are always pogroms. When guys come after you with hatchets and knives and you have nowhere to run, your only defense is to regress to this kind of um, thought defense, which is, oh, things will work out anyway, or God will help. What else are you going to do? You're going to go at the guys and, and yell at them, they're not scared. The Cossacks were not scared of that. So that's a, almost, shall we say, a sociocultural conditioning to get into a sense of either fatalism or believing in the ultimate power of gods that will inevitably be brought upon you, maybe because you're thinking, well, but there's no option there. Those are my two understandings of where all this is coming from. Now, let me do a psychoanalytic explanation, okay, of the Yiyatovas, of they will be good. Um, when you talk to somebody and says everything will work out, and again, what I do in psychoanalysis always is I just think to myself, who else do I know that thinks this way? And my answer inevitably is a two and a half year old or a three year old. When you ask him, hey, are you afraid of X or Y or Z? And he or she says, no, my mommy will take care of it. My daddy will take care of it. Do you know, have you ever, doctor, have you ever met my daddy? He is the biggest, strongest guy in the world. You know, he can pick up the Empire State Building. No, I didn't know that. Do you know he can do magic? Do you know anything that breaks he knows how to fix? Do you know that he knows the answers to everything? You know, my mommy asks something, she looks it up in the encyclopedia, he knows all the answers. So my daddy is the greatest, the smartest, whatever, okay? I don't hear it so much about mommies, I hear about daddies, daddies are the greatest. So I think just psychologically speaking, this is a transferring of what we as children had believing in this all-omnipotent father, which is basically very um, definitive in terms of future life for people who haven't had very traumatic upbringings. They have this ultimate trusted figure. And to introduce some heresy or some Freudian kthira, um, Freud believes that the impetus for believing in God, Freud does not talk about God. He doesn't care about God. He Basically, I inherited that from him, proudly so. We think of why do people believe in God? And people believe in God primarily as an extension of being used to this all-powerful figure who takes care of you. And in my sheet of my pseudo, you know, religious um, philosophy, maybe that's really why we were set up like that with the 
loving, guiding parent in most cases, so that we can then extend that and realize that there is a parent above it, Av, right? Okay. Av the, you you know, say, obviously, you know, it's probably in your memory bank somewhere, but you know that this is very close to what the anonymous author of the Sefer Achinuch says is the reason behind uh, Kibbet Aveim. The, the, what Kibbet Aveim is ultimately... Sorry, maybe in my unconscious, I did not know. That, ultimately, the, ultimately, the idea of the stress on putting it in the Ten Commandments, so to speak, of Kibbet Aveim is because this is the ladder that one uh, ascends in order to eventually okay. get, get a mature understanding of God. Great, great, great. The Chinook says a lot of, lot of smart things. Yes, right. it sounds and, great. And, right. and if, but but, but just, to, to, just to finish the thought so then you can go off and give us this entire <laughs> rabbi stuff. So basically, my idea I, is that it comes from an attitude of being well taken care of and the sense of things will work out, not in a thought-out way, but let's say with emotional logic. Sure, I've always been sure somebody's always come to rescue me, so I'm sure it's going to happen again. And again, it, it's, I'm glad of that, because otherwise you grow up with severe anxiety and depression about all the dangers around us. How do normal people adjust to a Gaza situation which has not been solved and is coming back to haunt you? It's there. Not only has it not been solved, they are capable of shooting those rockets again tomorrow and like 10 times as much as they did already. How do you adjust to it? You adjust to it by regressing to some kind of mentality, which used to be the only mentality we had in the ghettos or is the only mentality you have as a three-year-old, but now you use it in adult life. That's the end of my psychological, sophisticated or ridiculous take on what's going on. So is there, in a way, you said before, you're not going to suggest solutions out of this. Um, But you know as well as I do that recognizing the source of things makes you stronger and can nudge you away from the behaviors you had before. That's really the essence of what you do, isn't it? Uh, I don't do it. The people who pick up the pieces after do the diagnostics. Okay. I don't. All right, you yourself, I know you're the you're the grand poobah who who gives people where to go. But isn't isn't that the tools that really this program is about? Is really about not just spec. Right. So I, I think what you're saying is, if people realize that there's an infantilism, I don't know if that's the right word, of of of, of where they're standing, that they could perhaps see. Yeah, you know, this, they can be moved towards a more mature they don't have to become academics to be that way right once you realize why is it that you're throwing everything on this year tov attitude you say hmm maybe i can you know my dog sometimes uh, when she comes out of a uh, an exhausting walk she'll just shake herself completely and what she's trying to do is sort of recalibrate herself isn't there a way to shake yourself off of this and i know that you you don't have much hope in people but but don't you think that could happen don't you think when people realize why they are having this attitude that that they could perhaps grow from grow beyond it no my idea is that anytime you have what you consider to be a fixed maladaptive attitude that, okay, sometimes it's fixed. That's when people leave the neurotic end and get into psychotic functioning, sometimes things are maladaptive and that's it. But most of the time when we have maladaptive patterns is because they also serve an adaptive function. And that's what I was trying to insinuate that there's an adaptive function here that we don't want to sit around being on edge all the time. You can't live like that. So it's worth 
getting off the edge, um, embracing some kind of cockamamie, whatever kind of perspective it is that allows us to function normally. Most people um, do not, I, I know this from bad traumas, most um, uh, families of molesters do not realize that there is a molester in the family, even though every neighbor knows about it, but they don't realize it. Why? Because to live with knowledge that you have, you have this uncle or brother who's a molester who puts you in danger all the time is intolerable. So we close our eyes, we close our mouth, we close our nose, and we live with it. So this attitude is adaptive. The Yi Tov attitude is adaptive because otherwise, think of what we would look like. All the dangers around in the world around us, it's scary. Anything can happen. So you don't think about it. So you're saying how to get rid of it. I don't know if you want to get rid of it because then you, I mean, I'll be fine in terms of patience, but you can have a world of basket cases. Think of what's out there. If you think of everything that might okay. go wrong. No, and just to give you the classic, I know you like to harp, harp on it. And existential psychologists say that our denial of death is what allows us to live as normal people because otherwise you're going to freak out. Okay. So, so I don't know if I want, I don't, I'm not a fixer, but I wouldn't recommend that you fix this based on everything else that you have to contend with in life. I'm sorry, so, it's not as positive as you want. Okay, so, so I think the way you could split this is that there are certain behaviors that are part of everyday life that we know that risks are, are, are there. Crossing a street, getting into your auto, so driving. I'm an eloquent man. No question. You're yes. eloquent. Go. Yes. <laughs> I'm getting so many backhanded compliments today. I, I, <laughs> yeah. So, so here's my point that those p- things that have become part of normal behavior, despite all the risks involved, you you aren't going to get a person to overthink those. Otherwise, what's going to happen is no kid is going to go to school. No kid is going to get on a school bus. Nobody is going to get into a car. And what you're going to have is, 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 is a complete slowdown and paralysis of life. R- rigor mortis. You would right. have rigor mortis. However, Sam, when it comes to large events that are not part of necessarily life, whether it's the bleachers, whether it's going to Marone, those things, since they aren't essential in terms of day-to-day life, we could adapt a, 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 the non-Yiatov attitude. So I think that a person can bifurcate. And you're right, even though a, a logician would say, why is it that you don't take the same chances when you're crossing the street or when you're driving that you are when you're setting up this big event. And the answer, there is no, the answer is not necessarily logical. You mean, why don't we take precautions? Right. Right. And the reason is, is because certain things, the precautions would preclude the progress that we consider essential. Other things which aren't essential, but are uh, uh, exciting, um, fun, uh, give a certain uh, passion in life, those things I think we could manage. And those things I think, it, and let's go to the third thing, a war, right? Obviously, it, it, uh, the, a state of war is not constant. And the type of high alert in a state of war, a rocket fire, can also, we can adapt this extreme cautious attitude where we don't necessarily adapt it in, 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 in things of everyday life. So I think we can, in our mind, 
make perhaps an artificial difference, but I think it, it's a functional one. Don't you agree? Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> I really do. No backhanded nothing. I agree. Yeah. So, 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 so what we need to do is realize that these things, for example, mass trips to Marone or going to the Rebus and all the, uh, the Titian, that these are things which aren't as essential as waking up in the morning and having your eggs and not worrying that you're going to choke on, uh, on something that's going to take you to the hospital. Because you're right, that's going to par- paralyze you. However, th- we need to realize that these behaviors, as much as we embrace them and enjoy them, we, we can use caution and intelligence in dealing with them. And I think that, uh, so I, I, I think the path is there. I think the path is open. And I think that the um, you know, there's there's ways. I mean, Rav Nochem Eliezer Rabinovich, who has a connection, of course, to you and your family, uh, spoke about this when he wrote when people asked him about um, uh, yeshuvim that were in uh, proximity to Arab uh, to Arab uh, terrorists and others, and he talked yeah, about his son, his son had a colo at the cave of Yosef. And, and, and he talked about what we should do in terms of precaution. Should we say, for example, the teachers should not travel there? In other words, they were bringing in teachers to this yeshuv through a stretch of highway that was dangerous, that had attacks had occurred. And he felt, based on halacha, the same halacha that says you can take a job as a construction worker going up onto a, uh, a derrick, and, and working on or being a window washer, you have the right to make that choice, to be that teacher and get in that bus and, and go on that highway because that is your job. That's your life. That, that's your vocation. And if, and if we don't do that, then we don't have schools and we don't have teachers going to schools. And Rabinovich says, and you know what the principle is, Sam, and for our listeners, it's called Shomer Pesayim Hashem. Right, <laughs> that if something if something is part of natural behavior that people are doing it, God watches the fools. Right, God watches the the ones that are that are, that are are a pessy, which of, of course is. And I'm not doing my rabbi thing. I'm just translating to you, are people who are basically fooling themselves and saying, "Yeah, I'm a pessy. Yeah, but God will. will this is behavior everybody's doing, so we're doing that." Um, uh, obviously, when there is a known um, pathogen or or or, or, an, or or the coronavirus that is spreading, Shomer Pesayim Hashem doesn't make any sense because it isn't just statistically statistics say that you could get into a car accident. This is an actual thing that 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 moves from person to person and infects your system, infects your lungs and system, and and destroys you. Uh, it gets you at your weakest point. So that's very different, I think, than Yiyatov in terms of, yeah, who cares about uh, this this pathogen that's out there killing people? Yes, yes, yes. But again, you have to remember that what they taught us in Polemics 101 is that the more you observify a situation, the more powerful the argument comes out. But sure, no, you're, you're a man of common sense. Yes, definitely. <laughs> well, I, 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 I should hope so. Reach... Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.